we are at the end of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you would turn with me there. So last week we looked at the first 11 verses and we saw that Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians regarding the return of Christ. And the center of his encouragement in verse 5 had to do with their identity as children of light, children of the day. And Paul used these metaphors of day and night, dark and light, to describe the difference between Christians and non-Christians. And he also said that a Christian's life ought to be characterized by the types of behavior that's befitting their identity. Belonging to the day, you do daytime stuff, right? Christians are to stay awake, And to stay sober. Paul was using all kinds of metaphors, right? And in our passage today, he offers us and the Thessalonians maybe something more concrete. Real world examples of of what it really looks like for Christians to live as those who belong to the day and not to the night. Also, at the end of our passage last week, verse 11, we saw that Paul concluded his encouragement to them with this corporate call for the church to actually take on this role of encouragement and edification, building up the body. So they aren't supposed to just sit around and wait for Paul to send them another letter to encourage them again. They're actually supposed to be about this work that Paul has been modeling for them with one another. So these these two observations from our last passage really explain why our passage this morning exists and what Paul is doing. Paul is telling the Thessalonians in more detail what it looks like to walk as children of the day. This is how to live in light of the fact that we've been saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus and have been brought into his kingdom. And this is what it looks like to walk in the light together as a church. So Paul told us to encourage and edify one another. And here, he shows us how to do it. So Paul, appropriately, ends this letter with final instructions to the church on how to be the church. So we're going to walk through this passage and see three things. The care of the church, the work of the church, and the hope of the church. Let's look first at verses 12 through 15 where we see the care of the church. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the first thing we see he he says to the church in verses 12 through 13 is regarding how they are to care for their leaders who care for them. So Paul calls on the church to respect and to esteem their leaders. And he doesn't actually name this group. He doesn't call them elders or pastors. He actually doesn't even say leaders. He just describes a group of people and he describes them by what they do. And the description of their ministry 
is what we recognize as the ministry of an elder, of a pastor. And Paul describes this ministry under three points. Elders labor, lead, and admonish. Now, there's a great deal of labor involved in pastoral care. And labor is a good word for it. Because it's not, it, it communicates more than just work and tasks and doing things. Labor kind of connotes this idea of, of investing and pouring yourself into something, doesn't it? Like, if we're talking about a woman in labor, we don't talk about it as if she's checking a task off of her to-do list, right? It's, it's way more than that. And so also, pastoral ministry carries with it a certain weightiness that in part comes from Jesus' warning that pastors will be held accountable for how they shepherd his church. So there, there is a spiritual, mental, and emotional laboring for and among the saints as a part of pastoral ministry that, that goes beyond the tasks and duties of the office. Pastors labor, and they also lead. And, and the word here doesn't just mean be in charge, but to have charge. In other words, to care for those who are in your charge. Pastors desire to know not only how to be praying for church members, but also if there are other ways that members need care as well in in really practical ways. So we know that over the course of the Christian life, we bump into stuff that we're not ready for. Whether it's a financial problem or relational problem or health problem, the one thing that we do know is that we're all going to have problems that we don't feel ready for and that feel like they're probably too much for us to handle. And God knows this. And he has given Christians to the church. One of the reasons he's done it is so that we can actually care for one another in the midst of all of life, but especially in the midst of those times when life gets really hard. So he's tasked elders with with oversight and care, especially to help Christians walk through Not just to to make it through the hard times, but to make it through in such a way that the goodness of Jesus is put on display. And faithfulness to Jesus is held high. The the goal isn't just to avoid pain or avoid problems, because that's impossible, right? The goal must be for each Christian to be able to ask and answer the question, how do we go through this in such a way that honors the Lord? and displays to others that our hope is not in this world. And so there's a role for the church to come around that person, for, for pastors but, and, and for the entire church to come around them and for them to ask the question, how do we do this with you? How, how do we stay by you in this? What resources do we have that could help sustain you? Thirdly, elders admonish. And we, and we could probably see two parts to this. There's, the, there's this formative aspect of teaching and preaching and counseling according to God's word. We're always trying to pour more and more truth into our minds and hearts. And, and then there's also this corrective and rebuking side of admonition, isn't there? And that's usually not quite so popular. But it really makes sense if the gospel is true. So, 
God loves his children. We know that, right? God loves his children. But not all expressions of love feel the same to us. God loves his children, and therefore he wants them to grow up. And sometimes growing up is painful, isn't it? God loves his children, but he is not blind to our sin and weaknesses and failings. He knows we're a bunch of rascals. And therefore, a part of what it's going to feel like for sinners like us to be loved by a holy, perfect God, it's often going to feel like correction. Because what he's doing is making us less like us and more like him. And he's doing that because of how much he loves us. And so this kind of uncomfortable but growth-promoting and, and maybe an unenjoyable process, but a life-giving process, this kind of correction is another aspect of the care that God means for his people to have and to have it in the context of a church filled with people who love each other. So Paul points out here that pastors will especially have a, have a part in this kind of care in the church. But Paul's going to say in the very next verse that actually all church members are to be involved in caring for one another in, in this exact way. So we actually, as a, as a church, have been tasked with this responsibility in humility, in love, and, and seeking the good of, of that person to address specks in our brothers' and sisters' eyes. That's one of the ways God means for us to care for each other. Now, Paul, in laying out the work of elders, by no means intends to communicate that all of the work of ministry is done by leaders. So in verses 14 and 15, Paul is still addressing the same group. He's still talking to the church as a whole. So in 12 and 13, he's concerned with how they relate to their leaders who labor and care for the church in a unique way. But in 14 and 15 he addresses the kind of care that the members of the church are to have for one another. He mentions three categories of people within the church and gives different instructions about how the church is to care for each group. So discipleship is not a formula. That's one thing we could see. Discipleship, caring for one another, requires wisdom. Wisdom exercised in love. We have to know each other so that we can care for each other. The first group is the idle or the disruptive group. This is the group that's maybe doing things they shouldn't be doing, or maybe they're not doing things that they should be doing. Either way, how are their fellow church members called to care for them? Their brothers and sisters are to admonish them. And that's that same word that was used to describe the elders' ministry in verse 12. And here we see that it's, it's, it's not uniquely an elder's task. Every church member is called on to love their brothers and sisters, even if that calls for loving, humble correction. The second group is the faint-hearted. So these are church members who are discouraged for one reason or another. In Thessalonica, it might have been those who were discouraged because of the persecution that they were facing. Or because of the loss of loved ones in the church. These are things that Paul's been trying to encourage them in. These are the church members who are in the middle of one of those painful seasons of life. 
who are dealing with loss and pain and are facing discouragement and are becoming faint-hearted. That is, they're thinking about giving up. They're, They're growing faint. They aren't sure they can keep going. And how does Paul tell the church to care for their brothers and sisters who aren't sure they can keep going? Encourage them. And that's what Paul has actually been been doing and modeling in this very letter, this very kind of encouragement. Because he's been writing to to a church of faint-hearted Christians that have been discouraged about a bunch of stuff. And so he's pointing them to their hope in the return of Christ. He's pointing them to the confidence that they can have now because of what Christ has already accomplished for them and that they are now experiencing by the Spirit as they walk as children of the day, looking forward to the coming of the day of the Lord. When all the hardships and oppositions of walking in this dark world as children of the light will finally be done away with. So Christian, all the resources of heaven are at your disposal. God himself has dressed you in his own armor and giving you everything you need to stand and to endure. The third group in the church he mentions is the weak. And these are those who are spiritually immature. They may not be fully informed about the faith, and and thus may be particularly susceptible to temptations to be drawn away from the faith. And what is the church supposed to do with those who are weak? Help them. Help them grow. Help them understand. Help them stand against temptation. Help prepare them for those difficult seasons when when those who aren't sufficiently rooted in the truth of the gospel can fall away. Church, Paul says it's your job to make sure that every member is ready. And every member needs you. Every member of this church needs you to have this kind of perspective on the church. So for your antenna to be up, looking around for ways that the Lord may want to use you to encourage or to help or even to admonish. So no matter what particular care you may be trying to give or what kind of care you may be receiving in the church, Paul calls all of us to pursue this life task with patience. We, we need to have patience with one another just as we need others to have patience with us. Paul knows that by entrusting this kind of mutual care to the church, he's entrusting it to sinners who are going to mess it up sometimes. And therefore, we, we all must be patient with one another. Not only those for whom we are trying to care, but we also need to have patience with those who may be trying to care for us. Because they might not always do it right. Paul knows that we're going to mess it up sometimes. And so he tells us in verse 15, your brothers and sisters are going to sin against you and hurt you. It's not if they hurt you. It's when. We will offend one another. And so Paul's very concerned about how we handle our offense. When your brother or sister hurts you, how do you respond? You don't hurt them back. You demonstrate patience, and you actually do good to them. Patience 
forbearance, love, and mutual care are to characterize what the Christian life, life in the church, is like. Look with me at verses 16 through 22 where Paul summarizes for us the work of the church. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, this section feels sort of like Paul's lightning round, right? We're getting to the end of the letter, and so he is just throwing commands out there left and right. Now, I think it's really important for us to understand the context in which these commands are being given, though. Because I think if we don't, we might interpret these commands through the lens of our own kind of individualistic perspective. What I mean is, we'll hear things like, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and our sort of knee-jerk default is to go to our own personal lives and personal walks with the Lord and think through, what does it look like for me personally to pray without ceasing? And we try and figure that out. And I think that line of thinking is, is a legitimate application of this passage, but I don't think it's the heart of what Paul's really talking about. We need to remember that Paul's not writing this letter to, to you as an individual. And he's not writing this to, to actually any Christian as an individual. These are corporate instructions. So all the commands in this passage are in the plural. In other words, what they say is, y'all rejoice always. Y'all pray without ceasing. Y'all give thanks in all circumstances. Whoever translated our English Bible had a truncated version of the English language, right? So there's also... There's also contextual clues about what Paul has in mind here. In his closing instructions that we haven't read yet, he's going to talk about greeting one another with a holy kiss, which strikes us as culturally odd. Uh, But it's a reference to to a greeting being given to one another as the church gathers. We're greeting each other because we're all coming together. Also, Paul, in the closing of his letter, gives a really strong command to have this very letter read when the church is all gathered together. So Paul is in the mindset of he's talking uh, to the Thessalonians about what they're all supposed to be doing together. In other words, I think Paul is primarily giving the Thessalonians instructions here and addressing issues related to corporate worship. When the church gathers together, like we are gathered together right now, what are we supposed to do? And the first three commands, I think, are linked together. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And each of those commands has some type of universal modifier. So it's not just rejoice, it's rejoice always. It's pray and don't stop. It's give thanks in all circumstances. So the command to rejoice carries with it this idea of praise, like in Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So when the church gathers for worship, we gather to rejoice. And we gather to rejoice because of who God is and because of what he has done for us. Christians are not without sorrow in this world. 
But Christians also must never be without joy, even in the midst of sorrow. Because our joy and our rejoicing are, it's not in response to our changing circumstances. It's in response to the changeless one who has acted in a changeless way in history to save us from sin and death. And those realities never change, and therefore the people of God gather and always rejoice. Pray without ceasing. I think this is a command that we often find intimidating in a way that I don't think it's really meant to be. So it's common for, I think, Christians to read this verse and try to figure out how they're supposed to be praying 24-7 while they're sleeping and, and doing everything else that they have to do, and then we end up feeling like prayer failures. Now, understanding Paul's emphasis here on the corporate context of the body, I think, helps us. Prayer certainly is something that ought to be done individually, but corporate devotion to prayer is actually something that's pretty rare these days, isn't it? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray corporately. Our Father, give us this day. Forgive us Lead us. The Lord's Prayer, which is meant to be a model for all prayer, it's a corporate prayer. When the church is gathered together, Paul wants the Thessalonians to be clear that it is to be a time filled with prayer. Third, give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances includes when we're experiencing great loss and when we're discouraged or tired or just want to be left alone when we don't feel like praising God, when we don't feel like praying, and when we certainly don't feel very thankful. Even in those circumstances, the people of God gather to worship in joy, to pray, and to give thanks. Because, once again, our joy, our prayer, and, and thankfulness, these are, not, these are rooted in something much deeper than our particular circumstances at any one point in time. We're going to have ups and downs, right? But the glory of God will never change. Our need for Him that we express in our prayer to Him will always be there. And His goodness to us in a myriad of ways, but especially His goodness to us in giving us His Son will never change. And thus, it will never not be the right time to give thanks to God. So this, Paul says, is the will of God in Christ Jesus for believers. Now, the next group of commands, I think, are also related to one another. And I think they're also focused specifically on the corporate gathering of the church. Looking particularly at verses 19 through 22. So this next series of commands may feel rather foreign or strange. But what I want us to see is that Paul's concern is for the corporate gathering of the church to be centered around hearing from God and His Word. So verse 19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit and His work are often associated with fire, and quench means to put out a fire, right? So, I'm understanding quenching the Spirit here to be doing the opposite of what Paul tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, I remind you to 
fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So if fan into flame means use your gift, then quenching would mean to not use your gift or to prevent someone else from using their gift that the Holy Spirit has given for the purpose of building up the church. Then in verse 20, Paul gets more specific and addresses the gift of prophecy specifically. He specifically tells the church not to despise prophecies. Supposedly then, this must have been the type of way that the Thessalonians were quenching the Spirit. Prophesying is a gift and work of the Holy Spirit was being despised in the Thessalonian church in some way. Paul doesn't tell us exactly how it was being despised or or why this was happening, but given the way Paul kind of addresses the issue and, and deals with it, it seems likely that the Thessalonians were despising prophecy by not allowing prophesying of any kind to take place in the corporate gathering out of fear of false prophets. And false prophets are certainly something that the Thessalonians were dealing with and that Paul is concerned about for this church. So in 2 Thessalonians, the next letter, in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words... There were false prophets trying to convince the Thessalonian church that Jesus came back and you missed it. So a balanced handling of prophets and prophecy is something that Paul is more than once having to deal with the Thessalonians and trying to help them get a handle on it. So on one extreme, they they listen to false prophets and it throws them off. Paul's got to get them back on track. But on the other extreme, apparently, they quench the spirit... And don't allow any prophecy because they want to be so careful not to allow any false prophets. So Paul in verse 21 gives them the middle way. Don't quench the spirit by not allowing any prophecy. But also don't just accept anything that's said by anyone claiming to be a prophet. Rather test everything and hold to what is good. Now the idea of Testing prophets is not anything new in the New Testament. The testing of prophets was established in the Old Testament and the tests were severe because what we're dealing with here is the Word of God. God is perfect and His Word is perfect. And so if someone claims to be a prophet and claims to speak the Word of God and if that Word did not prove to be true, that person who spoke that Word was to be executed by stoning. This is so important because the Word of God is so important. It can't be confused or mixed up with human words because God's words bear absolute authority and man's words do not. And that is why the testing of the prophets was so important. The other test in the Old Testament was whether the prophet was calling you towards the worship of God or away from God to worship other gods. Deuteronomy says it doesn't matter if they're prophecies come true it doesn't matter if they do signs and miracles if what they're telling you is to leave the lord they're a false prophet no other tests are needed and that person was to be stoned to death as well so the reason that testing prophecy in the early church 
was so important is the same reason it was so important in the Old Testament. We're talking about God's very word. And there was a very real danger that was experienced in the early church of false prophets going around claiming to speak for God in order to draw away the sheep. Now the last question that I think rightly kind of comes up from this passage that I think we should consider is how is this supposed to look today? Are we supposed to be doing this? So in our corporate worship on Sunday morning, are we supposed to involve an element of prophets speaking words from God to the congregation? Words that then we test so that we can hold fast to what is good. Well, if you've been coming to GBC for any period of time, you've probably noticed that we don't do this. This is not a part of our corporate worship. But it is appropriate for us to ask the question, why not? We could put it more bluntly. Are we at risk of quenching the spirits by not having the exercise of this spiritual gift play a role in corporate worship? The answer is, it depends. How's that for strong, convictional preaching? It depends. Let me explain what I mean. We're going to have to back it up uh, just, just a little bit. Stay with me. We'll circle back around. There are a wide variety of perspectives on the gifts of the Holy Spirit today. And we're going to ignore most of them. We're going to ignore the more extreme charismatic views and focus on two different views. Cessationism and continuationism. Okay. Cessationism has that word cease in it. You hear that? And it's the view that the miraculous sign gifts and the revelatory gifts like tongues and prophecy have ceased. Continuationism, I think you hear a word in that one, right? Is the view that all the gifts of the Spirit continue throughout history and today. So the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of tongues, the gifts of miracles and healing are all still gifts given to individuals today for the purpose of the building up of the church. So these are the two views I want us to look at. We're not going to actually look at those two views very often. I just want us to put them in front of us to to, to help us. Um, It's important that we understand what the differences are because what you believe about the present status of the gifts will affect what you do with 1 Thessalonians 5. So, I'm a cessationist. I believe the sign gifts and the revelatory gifts were given at a particular point in redemptive history as a means of confirming the apostolic witness to Christ. But, with kind of the the establishment of the church and especially the formation of the canon of Scripture, these gifts of miracles and healings as well as tongues and prophecy, which we do see all throughout the book of Acts, right? They just don't seem to continue to play a role in the life of the church throughout the rest of the history of the church. And that's not to say I don't believe in miracles and healings, but that I don't believe there are individual Christians today who have a spiritual gift of healing or a spiritual gift of tongues. Even though I believe God can and does heal and can and does perform miracles today. Now, you don't have to be a cessationist to belong to this church. Our 
This is not an issue that our confession of faith requires agreement on. We can have a variety of perspectives on this. But when it comes to the corporate gathering, as we noted earlier, we are kind of functionally cessationist, aren't we? That is, our practice in worship does not include the exercise of gifts like prophecy and tongues. And so here is the explanation behind my unsatisfying answer earlier to the question, are we quenching the Spirit? It depends. The real answer is no. We are not quenching the Spirit if cessationism is true. Can we all see why that's the case? If the Holy Spirit is not giving those gifts to the church today, then the church is not at fault for not exercising those gifts because they don't have them. Does that make sense? Now, if continuationism is true, then I think our practice would put us at risk of quenching the Spirit if there were individuals whom the Spirit has given these gifts for the purpose of building up this church. Now, I don't want to over-exaggerate the nature of this debate. So I want to wrap up by adding a slight complication that I think actually promotes a great degree of unity between these two positions. Both of these positions, this is so important, both of these positions agree when it comes to the question of whether there is continuing revelation today that is on par with Scripture. Both positions stand together in affirming the sufficiency of Scripture and that the canon is closed. No more Bible is being written or coming. There is not new revelation on the level of Scripture being given today. And that's really important, and that's a massive thing to be in agreement on. So, I think that because of that, both cessationists and continuationists can actually agree on a ton when it comes to our passage in Thessalonians. The Thessalonians did not have the completed canon, right? They didn't have the New Testament, and therefore they experienced a lack of revelation that you and I do not experience today. We've got the whole thing. And thus, they were in a greater place of need to have words of prophecy given to them because they did not have the completed canon. Both groups would agree on that. Cessationists and continuationists can both agree that that once the church has the completed canon, they then have all the revelation they need. They have the scriptures, and the scriptures are sufficient. And because of the sufficiency of scripture... They agree on all of that. And then then here's the slight variation on where the disagreement would come in. Because of the sufficiency of Scripture, the need for prophetic words is either, for continuationists, greatly reduced and thus relegated to a supplemental role, or, for cessationists, it's a gift that's no longer needed and therefore no longer given. So when it comes to the question of, of gifts... These are important issues to discuss, and I want us to be clear on where there is disagreement, but I also want us to be really clear on where there is a great deal of unity to be had. The work of the church, when the church gathers, is for the people of God to give themselves to the hearing of the word of God, and then, hearing from him, we respond how? Joyful praise, prayer, and thanksgiving. 
So we consider the care of the church, the work of the church. Finally, let's look at verses 23 and 28 where we see the hope of the church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul has ended this letter with a bunch of commands. He's given the Thessalonians a lot of stuff to do. And it's very possible to feel intimidated by the high calling that is the Christian life among God's people. Paul ends this letter with a final encouragement in the form of a blessing. And and it's a reminder that the work of sanctification is a work that God does in us, not that we do in ourselves. So to sanctify means to make holy. And there's a sense in which every Christian is already holy. The Bible calls Christians saints or holy ones. But there's another sense of sanctification that is progressive. It's a process that continues throughout life, whereby we grow and increase in holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus. So sanctification is a part of salvation. It's part of what it means to be saved. God saves sinners, and he saves them completely. So he saves sinners from sin's penalty, the penalty of hell. And he saves them from sin's penalty by sending Jesus to take the penalty for sin upon himself. And in exchange... Jesus clothes sinners in his own righteousness so that those who are in Christ can be cleansed from their sin and made perfectly holy in God's sight for Jesus' sake. But God doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from sin itself. He saves us from the power of sin. He causes his people to grow in holiness. And he gives us the means by which we grow. So the means by which we grow in holiness has been what Paul's been talking about in our passage this morning. God's given us to one another to help each other grow, to love and to serve one another, to teach and to admonish, to help and encourage. So the people of God in the church is the context within which this aspect of salvation, this process of sanctification happens. And he's not only given us The church is the context of sanctification, but he's also given us the means by which we can approach him in worship. He's given us his word so that we can know him. So that we can hear his words to us and obey him. And he's given us means to respond to his word. Joyful praise, prayer, thanksgiving. These are privileges and gifts that God has given to his people that enable us to respond to God in worship in his presence. And he does not leave us on our our own. He calls us to himself. He shows us how we are to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. And then he gives us everything that we need in order to depend upon him to do this work in us. Salvation is of the Lord, Christian, and that means that your sanctification is is of the Lord. It is His work. As Paul says here, He will complete it. So the Christian's hope in this world, as we struggle with sin and temptation and weakness, the Christian's hope is wrapped up here in verse 23. 
God is the one who will sanctify you. And along the way, He's going to keep you. God's not going to allow His children to be finally overcome by the darkness of sin and death. He is holding on to His people. He will never let them go. He will keep them until our final hope of salvation arrives at the return of Christ. Verse 24, Christians have hope. Why? Because of God's character. He's faithful. He's trustworthy, and therefore we can trust Him. Christians have hope because of God's character. He's faithful, but Christians also have hope because of what God has already done in the past. Christians are those who have been called by God as children of the day and have been made completely new. And because God is faithful and because God has done this work of salvation in the past, Christians can face the future with joy and certainty as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus. Which is the final completion of this work of salvation that God is doing in His people. Now, if this vision of the Christian life in the context of caring relationships within the church and centered around the corporate worship of God strikes you as being kind of different than what you've always thought that Christianity was about? One, I'd love to talk with you more about that after the service if you would like. But I'd also encourage you to take a fresh look at the New Testament epistles that describe what the Christian life looks like. If you do that, I think you'll actually see the same thing that we saw today. Christianity is lived out within the caring community of the local church and is focused around what God has done for us in Christ and then calls Christians to respond to what God has done in worship and obedience to His Word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that Graham Bible Church would be marked as a community of believers that truly cares for one another. Lord, we ask that GBC would be marked as a worshiping church filled with joy and prayer and thanksgiving and centered around your word. And Lord, we ask that GBC would be a people marked out in the midst of this world as those who have a certain hope, and who are waiting patiently, looking expectantly for the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.